need uh, in our Christian life new beginnings. We are not necessarily new beginners because many of us have been around a long time. But some of us may be new beginners. But anyway, even as Christians, uh, seasoned Christians, uh, we need new beginnings. This is a very big principle in the Bible. Uh, and, and we see it in nature as we shared yesterday. Every day we have a new beginning. We have a night and we have a morning. <laughs> and this is in the Bible, you know. His mercies are great and they're new every morning. So we can have a new beginning every day. And sometimes, as I shared, we have a bad day and the best thing to do is go to bed early. <laughs> and then get up early the next morning and start again. And then, you know, we have the four seasons. Uh, you guys don't have much of a winter down here, but, and I know that. I was raised in Baton Rouge, same temperature. But in Oklahoma, we have four strong seasons. And uh, in the winter, we lose all the leaves on our non-evergreen trees. And uh, it l looks pretty bad, like everything's dead. But everything's not dead. Uh, there's a reason for winter. And uh, the, uh, some plants, the roots are growing in the winter. I mentioned I was up in Kansas last weekend. And uh, they were telling me about the, uh, it was really cold up there, they were telling me about the winter wheat, which uh, by the time the winter gets hard, it's just a little bit of a sprout. But during that, those winter months, the, the roots are growing. And uh, then when the spring comes, it grows higher. And, it's, it's, and that is mainly the wheat that they use for bread, for, ta for table consumption. So there's a, God has his purposes for winters. Uh, we go through winters, we go through nights, we go through tunnels, and uh, then we have springs, and we have summers, and even we have falls where there's some shedding of old things. You know, the leaves fall, and then back into a winter. So, and I recommended two books, and I'll recommend them again. One is called The Law of Revival by Brother Lee, and the other is called God's Need and God's Goal. And I would say they're both very, very helpful. And if you only have time to read a little bit of one of those, let me tell you, you read the last two chapters of God's Need and God's Goal, and it will really uh, be a help to you. It's a great, great word, kind of an amazing word. I don't know that I've ever really read Brother Lee in this way before, so it's worth reading. We'll touch that a little bit in the sharing this morning about some of those principles. So we, we left off on Roman numeral 2 under message uh, 2. The message 3 is just one side of one page is quite short so we're good on our time uh, and that Roman numeral 2 is the application of Christ <clears throat> and we talked a little bit about point A already seeing and maintaining a clear vision of God's eternal purpose and I added to that and God's eternal economy or the economy of God and this is actually that's an important point I should have put on the outline because we need to see God's purpose but we also need to see God's economy and that the economy of God is how he's going to work out his purpose. And that is very, very important to see. And that, of course, is related to dispensing of his life into us. And that begins when we're born again, when his life is dispensed into us for the first time. And that's when we receive the divine life and we're born of the Spirit. We become children of God. But it continues throughout our life as dispensing goes on. And, but a part of this dispensing, or I should say a part of it, related to this dispensing, there is the environmental factors. 
And this is, you could call this the discipline of the Holy Spirit. You could call it God's arrangements. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians as the uh, consuming of the outer man and the renewing of the inner man. So as we go on in life, uh, of course, our bodies are aging. Now I'm, you know, a, a senior citizen, so I experience this. Uh, it's hard for me to think of myself in that way because I came, in, I came to the Lord into the Lord's recovery when I was a college kid. And uh, I still, I kind of like Peter Pan, I still think I'm young, <laughs> but I'm not young anymore. <laughs> but anyway, so I got to, now I order off the senior's menu, I do get to save a little money <laughs> based on that. <laughs> anyway, uh, but there is this consuming of the outer man. And but Paul says we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is being consumed, our inner man is being renewed. So uh, for us Christians, our days are brighter and brighter. Even though we have, you know, we have the problems in human life with all the environmental factors and even our age. But still, our future is not darker and darker. It's brighter and brighter. Because the inner man is being renewed. But God uses the environmental factors uh, related to his economy. And that is the tearing down of the old for the building. And even, you know, in the book of Job which is a hard book to understand, but we, in the life study, Brother Lee really helped us understand that Job was a man who was quite perfect, quote, quote, in his human living, but it was without God. He had, he had a kind of a per human perfection uh, of good, maybe you could say, but God's purpose is not that. God's purpose is to build uh, God into him. Amen. And so for this, there needed to be some tearing down. And uh, even in this light, <clears throat> Brother Lee shared with us that, you know, judgment on the devil was executed at the cross of Christ. He had been judged. But the final carrying out of that judgment will not come until the end of the millennial kingdom. At the beginning of the millennial, he'll be thrown into prison for a thousand years. At the end is when he's finally done away with. And this is because uh, God still can have a little usefulness out of him. And the way Brother Lee described it is an ugly tool. An ugly tool. So, uh, you know, sometimes in the process of building, you also have demolition in the early stages. And so the Lord does need to break down some of the old man. And uh, we are baptized and we begin our Christian life. And this is a statement that we don't trust ourselves, that we're good for death, and that we should be buried. But environmentally, we're also quite stubborn. And strictly speaking, Watchman Nee shared that really, the God's work, in a sense, should be able to be accomplished just by the work of the Holy Spirit positively. But because we're such a difficult case, and because the fall has complicated us to such a degree, that there is a need for environmental factors. And this is the, uh, the dealings that we have. And as I shared yesterday, the two, yeah, you could say the two main works of the Holy Spirit uh, are revelation and discipline. So we have this, and, but we trust God. He's good. He's, don't, don't think God is bad. He's good. Even in the middle of all these things, we can enjoy him a lot. We can experience him a lot. And we don't need to be afraid. He never gives us more than we can bear. But this view of God's purpose, which is ultimately the New Jerusalem, and how he works it out, 
by the new creation. You know, we have in 2 Corinthians, you know, uh, the, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And you also have a verse in the end of Galatians chapter 6 where Paul is talking about uh, circumcision doesn't mean anything and uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. In other words, no kind of religious or outward practices really are of any value at all. But he, then he says this. I like this. I like his utterance. But a new creation is what matters. You know, sometimes we say, so, well, you know, what, ma what matters anyway? What, what does it matter? What matters in life? Let me tell you what matters in life. A new creation. Amen. That is what matters. But what is a new creation? A new creation is God dispensed into us. Amen. It's the old creation being renewed by the life and the nature of God. That is what matters. Nothing, really, in a sense, we could say matters but that. Uh, everything else can go, but that can't go. That's what need, our life needs to be focused on. We need to see it. And you see, our destiny is the new Jerusalem. Amen. It's to be fully renewed, to be not only renewed in our spirit, but our soul and even our body to be glorified. And then to be built up with others into the body of Christ, which is ultimately the new Jerusalem and, and described in Revelation 21 and 22 in signs and symbols and, and pictures. It's, the whole thing is a big symbol. You know, it's not a physical city in that sense. It's a entity of God and man. It's the consummation of all the divine blessings that we see in the New Testament. Every divine blessing in the New Testament is consummated in the New Jerusalem. Transformation, glorification, mingling, building, abiding, the divine romance. You can just go down the list. All these things are in the New Testament which are spiritual blessings. They're not physical blessings. You know, the divine romance is a spiritual thing. Transformation is a spiritual thing. Uh, renewing is a spiritual thing. Uh, abiding in the Lord is a spiritual thing. These are spiritual blessings. So to think that the new Jerusalem would be a physical city is preposterous. It's preposterous. Because all the spiritual blessings, all of a sudden it all becomes physical. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make one bit of sense. Everything in the New Testament is spiritual, not physical. We're not the Jews. The Jews get physical blessings. We get some, God is sometimes blesses us physically too. He does in measure. But mainly it's not physical, it's spiritual. Even the beginning of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So this is why, you know, Christians who are into this prosperity gospel are really misaiming, as Paul told Peter, as Paul told Timothy. Some people are misaiming. They're misaiming. That is the old dispensation, and that's, by the way, that's just for the Jews. God doesn't promise that to any people on earth except the Jews. And they are promised physical blessings, and the Jews, very interestingly enough to me, uh, of course, they've also been disciplined quite a bit by the Lord, but uh, they do have a lot of physical blessings. They tend to be pretty smart, and they make a lot of money, <laughs> and they populate Congress and Supreme Court and all these other places, and doctors and engineers and bankers and everything. So they really, and you know, of all the Nobel Prizes awarded, 1% of the world population is Jewish. 
25% of the Nobel Prizes are awarded to Jews. <laughs> Interesting, huh? So they, they are, they're blessed. Of course, the Lord has also disciplined them quite a bit. But anyway, we don't be confused by that because Paul was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, but he didn't have, like, a Rolls Royce and live in a mansion. He was shipwrecked, and he was in the sea, and he despaired of living, and he was in prison, and eventually his head was cut off. He was, that's how he died. And he was martyred. And you look at the lives of the apostles. Most of them were martyred. Most of them did not die a natural cause. John did, maybe one or two others did, but most were not. So we, are, we need to see God's purpose, and we need to see God's economy. And this is why, and we mentioned yesterday on this point, that sometimes we, even in the local church, we may think that the, we're the, you know, we're, we have a lot of truth among us. We really do. And we have the wonderful practices. Uh, and we have a lot of really consecrated Christians. So we may think, well, this should be utopia. But I shared, utopia is from two Greek words. That book was written by Sir uh, Thomas More, I think. And uh, that word, he picked up utopia is from two Greek words. U, U-S, I think, and topos. And U is no. And topos is place. That's the name of his book, No Place. You got that? So don't think there's going to be a utopia on this earth in this age. This is not the age of that. Mm-hmm. May, you could say kind of, sort of, maybe the New Jerusalem, but, um, but the concept is not right. It's the communists who pick up the concept of utopia. Believe me, they do. <coughs> and, of course, it's not, believe me, it won't work for the communists either. It'll, it'll be ten times worse. Okay, so we need to be see God's purpose and God's economy. And if you don't see that, then you get disappointed when things happen to you, when things happen in the church. Because, you know, in a sense, every local church, in, in one, to one degree or another, is a Corinth. And that means there's trouble, there's problems. There, we are all a work in progress. None of us are fully transformed. We make mistakes. We have failures. And we have to live with people who have failures like we do. And so this, if we have a, a wrong understanding of things, we think, what's the matter? This is must, must not be the right place. But if you see God's purpose and God's economy, then you, you're clear. And it also it helps you pass through things personally. And it helps you understand that the church is going to pass through things because God is working on a new creation because a new creation is what matters i like that part of that verse in galatians 6 that's what matters and that new creation is god mingled with humanity the new creation is really just the old creation renewed okay so we go on and the the application of christ the next point would be uh yeah just one more thing about that and i mentioned god's need and god's goal the last two chapters of that, but well, you read the whole book, but the last two chapters are really the kind of the summary of it, because he actually gave that book, I think, in more than one place, so it's kind of put together. But uh, uh, in that book, Brother Lee talks about this matter of the old creation and the new creation, and the the need for us to receive grace and be dispensed into, and receive, you know 
more dispensing. And in this light, he speaks about why God uh, uses circumstantial dealings in our life. And these circumstantial dealings can be a wide range of things. It can be all kind of things, health, finances, family, work, all kind of things. It, it can also be, and he makes particular mention of this in that book, and that is he, he mentions personal failures. And he particularly points out David's uh, failure and Peter's failure. Of course, there's the Bible is an honest book. The Bible tells the way it was and tells of God's people, but it doesn't, you know, uh, what do you call it, airbrush out people when they have a failure. He still tells their story. And David had a failure, a giant failure, and, and of course Peter had a giant failure, just to name two. Brother Lee mentions this, and he talks about that why God would even allow failures. And of course, I mentioned a little bit yesterday, but with Peter, remember, the Lord said that Satan is going to sift you. And uh, that a sifting is a process where you have wheat and you shake a container and the wheat goes through the, uh, the, the what do you call it? The mesh, the mesh, yeah. It goes through the filter and then the, the husks are caught. So it's a purifying, a refining process. And it happens also, and I think the book of Jeremiah mentions it, and Jeremiah, in the old days, when they would get wine, they would pour from vessel to vessel because in the leaves are the uh, leaves and things would be at the bottom and then you could make it purer as you went on. So this is a process of purification. And uh, so even the Lord says to Peter, you, uh, Satan's going to sift you. And Peter was proud. And Peter was confident. And Peter was uh, maybe a little bit arrogant. And Peter thought he was better than other people even better than the other disciples. And he was boasting about that. And, uh, but Peter went through a big, big failure because he wasn't the man he thought he was. And, but the Lord used that. And the, he said, when you are recovered, you, you, can, you can restore your brothers. or Something like that. He says, that you're going to go through this, and yet this can be useful to you. If you'll repent, and you'll recognize your failure and you'll then rise up and not live in, in a life of just self-pity. Uh, but you go on, then you can be helpful, you can be useful. And the same thing with David, in a sense. David, of course, uh, in, in, in some sense, his failure was much worse. Although Peter denied the Lord, that's pretty bad. But David, uh, you know, he was, look, David had even proposed before his failure building the temple. I mean, he had even... He was a great warrior. He was a great man of God. And he had a heart for God. He loved God. And he even was talking about building the temple. But the Lord said, you know, you're not the one to do that. But uh, then he has this giant failure. And his failure really, he broke all the moral commandments of the Ten Commandments. He got involved in adultery. He got involved in murder. He lied. He coveted. Uh, what else? Did I miss something? What is it? He stole, yeah, he stole another man's wife. So he broke all of the five commandments on the moral side. You, know, you have five kind of ceremonial and five moral. The fifth one on the ceremonial side, though, is somewhat related to morality, too, because that's honoring your parents, which is more than ceremonial. But the second five is purely moral, stealing, lying, adultery, coveting, murder. So he broke all of those. And uh, 
Of course, he was rebuked by the prophet Nathan. And he was the king. And you know, at that point, he could have said, Look, Nathan, you're the prophet. I'm the king. Out of here. But he repented. He accepted that God's rebuke. And God, uh, through Nathan, said, Your sin will be put away. But the sword is not going to leave your house. And this and this and this is going to happen. And, of course, David uh, suffered a lot, although his fellowship with God was restored. And he wrote some wonderful, of course, Psalm 51 and other wonderful psalms. And uh, much of this is after his failure. But uh, he did receive discipline. And so the Lord, the Lord used even that failure. And so, and then you had, uh, yeah, well, yeah, that, that failure. And then Brother Lee, you know, in the Matthew Life Study, when we went through the genealogy of Christ, he showed us a wonderful formula that you should never, never forget. And that formula is, uh, is man's failure uh, and repentance. So it has to be both failure and repentance. Plus God's forgiveness equal... And it equals something good for God's purpose and God's building. Because out of David's failure, coupled with his repentance, and God's gracious forgiveness, which he's always willing to do when we repent, came Solomon. And Solomon built the temple. And Solomon was a type of Christ. And Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and many of the Proverbs. And he was... Uh, he's a, he's a type of Christ but you have to realize Solomon came out of not the original act of adultery that child died but his mother his mother was Bathsheba his mother was Bathsheba so that was a big failure and can you think can anything good come out of that you know you, we wonder sometimes but let me tell you something good came out of it and his name was Solomon <laughs> so the Lord's a lot broader and wiser and smarter than we are you can't figure him out but we do know the principles and that is with failure we do need to repent and we don't need to justify ourselves we need to repent seriously to God but once we repent we have to get up and go on don't be just dwelling in your failure we can regret a little bit but even brother Lee said don't regret too much <laughs> that sounds funny because we kind of think we're supposed to but no you regret you repent and then you forget it and go on you have to. God forgets it. You may still get some discipline from the Lord, but that's another matter. Anyway, this is, you read that book and you'll uh, enjoy it. Of that particular last two chapters. Okay, then number two, B says having a heart to see and match God's need, and uh, don't have a lot to say there. Uh, the Lord said, "Blessed are the pure in heart." And then in Proverbs four, uh, the a writer—I don't know if it was Solomon or not—he said, "Guard your heart." above all that you guard. So the heart is a big, big matter. And uh, we have to guard our heart. And the gateway to your heart is going to be your eyes, your ears, things like this. This is how things enter into our heart. And so we have to guard, be careful what you listen to, what you look at. These things affect us. And uh, we have to guard our heart. And, and even with sometimes things just rise up in our heart. Maybe it's not directly through the eyes or the ears. Just thoughts and intentions and desires. 
And we have to guard our heart and be careful. And then John, at the end of 1 John 5.21, the last verse, he says, guard yourselves from idols. The children of Israel in the Old Testament got involved in idolatry over and over and over again. We don't see that much in the West, but, uh, but we still have idols in, in the potential for idols. And an idol, as I mentioned yesterday, is something, or maybe it could even be someone, who we love maybe in a way even more than the Lord. Or maybe we fear more than the Lord. Or maybe we serve more than the Lord. Or compete with the Lord. And that can be a goal. It can be an ambition. It can be a person. It can be a dream. It can be a physical possession. A lot of things can become idols. And so we have to guard our heart from idols, John says. And I don't think John was speaking mainly about stone when he wrote that. I think he was talking more about idols like I shared. Okay, then two is uh, developing and building up your inner life. The Christian, is main, the Christian life, remember, is mainly an inner life. It's not that much about outward imitation. There's a little bit of role for imitation because Paul says it a few times, imitate me. But be careful on the imitating. We can learn by pattern, example, and in that sense we can imitate. But mainly we imitate the, the uh, desire or the, the, what we see in a person, not the outward actions. If you get into imitating outward actions, modeling the way you pray after someone else or their tone or their clothing and things like this, uh, we can learn some things from others. We do. And imitation is related to learning in the human life. That's why children tend to have their parents' accent. Because you learn a lot of language by listening and imitating. You know, I have a kind of a Louisiana twang, I guess. Still, I've been in Oklahoma a long time, but it hadn't t- totally departed from me, you know. <laughs> Yesterday I said something about, I'm fixing to do something. I think, I think here in Texas they say fixing too, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe not as much, but anyway. Uh, I'm fixing to do something. But... Uh, but mainly the Christian life is an, is an inner life. We have a life that's hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we don't let your Christian life become increasingly outward. Must be strongly inward. You must have an inner life. and You must have a private life with the Lord. You must have intimacy with the Lord. You must have a personal relationship with the Lord. Don't let that go and become, because there's a kind of a push Sometimes everything becomes outward, and that is a degradation. So in this regard, just a few points. Number one is a great secret, and uh, this is definitely a theme of the Apostle Paul, and this is uh, articulated here in a few of these verses. Here in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned in whatever circumstances I am to be content. The reason watchman knee said that 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the deepest chapters in the Bible, which you may not think offhand that should be considered one of the deepest chapters in the Bible. Uh, because we would think, well, it's about marriage and things like that. It's, I mean, that's not just a human problem. But it's deep because there's an underlying theme, and that is to be content with God's arrangement. And if you read it carefully, you're going to see that. 
But Paul said, I've learned a secret, and this secret is, in whatever circumstances I am, to be content. Now this Luther, you know, we were in uh, Wittenberg in, in last year, or year before last, for the Itero, and so I went to, uh, I mean, we were in, yeah, Leipzig. Went to Wittenberg, and uh, Wittenberg, of course, is where Luther was a professor, and where he nailed the 99 theses, 95 or something like that. But anyway, he... Uh, he, I bought a book of his quotes, and he, he was a very funny guy, a witty fella, and uh, he was pretty sharp-tongued, but he said a lot of funny things. But one thing he said that was pretty good, he said, next to faith, the highest art is learning to be content with your circumstances. And then he said, I have not learned it well yet. He admitted that this is difficult for him. And all of us have difficulty in this. And this is related to coveting because we always look at someone else's situation or feel sorry about our own situation thinking their job is better, their house is better, or we, things need to change. But for a Christian, uh, this is a distraction. God may change your circumstances. It's not wrong that they change. And we're not suggesting you don't work hard and make more money and things like that. That's all fine. Fine and good. But if our heart is consumed with this, then it, is, it will frustrate our Christian life. So Paul says, I've learned the secret, both to, hung, both to be filled and to hunger. So he could be filled. He could be filled. He could be in a, a nice situation, but he could also be in a bad situation. And then he says, I'm able to do all things in him who empowers me. Now this verse is borrowed by athletes these days. Uh, because I know the guy who used to play quarterback for Florida would put under his eyes uh, P413, Philippians 413, the Heisman Trophy winner. He could do all things, like touchdowns and laterals and all kind of things like that. And I ran into uh, Evander Holyfield, who was, used to be the world heavyweight boxing champion, one time at an airport, and I was talking to him, and uh, because I remembered that on the cover of Time magazine a number of years ago when he was fighting Mike Tyson, who had become a Muslim in prison, and Evander Holyfield was a Christian and a fairly outspoken Christian, they were billing this as the Crusades, the Christians <laughs> and the Muslims fighting there. <laughs> and, of course, you know, uh, Holyfield on his boxing shorts had this verse. I can do all things in him who empowers me. And uh, I think he won. I don't know if he won against Tyson or not. Did he win? Uh, but I think Tyson bit his ear off or something like that. <laughs> anyway, okay. But this is not the real meaning of, of this verse. The meaning is that we, because the context tells us this, it means that we can, uh, we can endure we can be in a good situation or we can be in a bad situation. A good one, we're not overly affected. And a bad one, neither are we affected. So this was Paul. This is a secret. The secret. And for this, you have to have an inner life. Um, you know, I remember, you know, of course, some of you knew Don Looper. He was from Austin. But Don shared something one time. I, it was, I always remembered. He said, you know, there's, there's this saying. Christ satisfies. And then there's something deeper than that. Christ satisfies. Well, okay, Coke satisfies. 
But there's something <laughs> deeper than that, and that is I am satisfied with Christ. Now, you can't say I'm satisfied with Coke because you need more than that. But if you have Christ, ultimately, we hope we could all say I'm satisfied with Christ. That he, I'll, I'll take his arrangements, I'll take his provisions, I trust him. Okay, then you have the verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is one of the deepest chapters in the Bible. And this is, articulates why Brother Nee said it was deep. Paul says, each one, brothers, in what status he was called, in this let him remain with God. So, he's talking about two things. The institution of slavery, which of course is a terrible thing and was abolished in God's sovereignty. Although, it's, there's still slavery in parts of the world. But, uh, and then he's talking about marriage. Being married or not being married. Not being married, wanting to be married. Being married, maybe not wanting to be married. But uh, he says, we need to be satisfied in our circumstances and remain with God. To be content. That's why he can, this is considered a deep chapter. And then you have his writing in 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Concerning the church. In a similar vein of thought. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, even as he willed. So here we are in the church, and we're with the other brothers and sisters, but again, God is the one who places the members in the body. And Paul goes into great detail in chapter 12 to talk about, are you an eye? Don't despise the ear. Are you... a uh, you know, basically the, 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 the paraphrasing version is if you're a little finger, don't uh, be envious of the eye. But if you're an eye, don't look down on the foot. Uh, because every member is needed in the body. And it's not up to you to determine your placement. It's God has placed the members in the body. And in the world, people can be ambitious and they may get ahead. Uh, the world's a little different. But in the church, it's a matter of God's measuring and God's portion for us. And even the, the word is used here. Uh, uh, one of these verses. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, well, that's in Romans chapter, three, chapter 12. It says, God has apportioned to you a measure so yes we appreciate the eye and we appreciate the ear but the eye is not everything you don't need to be that you appreciate the eye but you don't have to be that uh, esteeming the eye that highly every member of the body is needed you need the foot to care to walk you places you need the stomach to digest you need the uh, skin to keep your body in there. Every portion, every part of our body is important. So you shouldn't over-esteem, neither should you under-esteem. And so we tend sometimes to under-esteem ourselves. We think, well, I'm, not, I'm nothing, I'm too little, I'm worthless. But that's also wrong. But to be ambitious to be somebody you're not is also wrong. Because God places the members in the body as he wills. And to be ambitious is, not only is it wrong, it's completely futile. Because you'll never be what you're not. If you're a finger, to be ambitious to be an eye is ridiculous. You're not ever going to grow, 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 grow until one day I'm an eye. 
I see you, I see you. You're going to be a big finger, but hopefully not too big. You need to grow in measure of the body. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I was told by a doctor when we were dealing with a, bro a brother who had cancer, he told me, he says, you know, cancer is a growth, but it's a growth out of measure. And even he said there's something called contact inhibition. The cells, when they contact each other, they're inhibited in a positive sense to stay in their measure and to grow according to the need of the body. But with cancer, they lose contact inhibition and they grow out of measure and not in proportion to the need of the body. So we need to grow, but if you're a little finger, you don't want to grow to be a tree. That can be terrible, right? And believe me, you'll never grow to be an eye. You'll just grow to be a proper finger, which is good. Do you want to give up your little finger? I don't think anybody wants to give it up um, because it has its place. So this is a liberation for us saints. And Brother Nee said, when you see the body, this is the way he put it, when you see the body, and what he means by that is when you see the portion, the functioning of the different members of the body and God's placement and God's measure and God's apportioning, he said it's like being saved again. Amen. Why? Because there's no need for competition. There's no need for envy. There's no need for thinking, oh, this person is like, you know, the greatest person there is. No, he's a good, good brother. He has his measure. He has his portion. I respect it. I receive but he's not everything. He's just that member. God has all these different members. So this is really sweet. And uh, of course, one companion verse very much is Romans 12, 3. And you know, chapter 12 of Romans is a chapter on the body. Now, Paul is the only writer in the New Testament that writes about the body. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, he talks about the body. No other books, no other writers. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, a lot about the body. And uh, in chapter 12 of Romans, quite a bit about the body too. The church has the body. And there he begins saying that we need to present our physical bodies, a living sacrifice. And then he, in verse 2, he says, and we shouldn't be fashioned according to this age. If, we, if we're living a worldly life, it's not that easy to fit into the body because the body is Christ. So we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's his words in Ephesians 4. But here it says, transformed by the renewing of the mind. So our mind needs to be renewed. We need to be renewed. We need the spirit to get into our mind. And one of the ways that happens is by exercising our spirit, by praying, and by reading the word. Our mind is being a little renewed. The spirit is getting into our mind. And I think many of us can identify with this. It does affect the way we think and the way we see things. I can tell you, I've shared a little bit about my story, but the very night I was saved, the very night I was saved, May 20. Second or third, I can't remember the day exactly, but either 22nd, 23rd, I realized I was wrong about a number of things. Not so much sin, because that just, I wasn't in that realm that yet that much, but I was wrong in my understanding of some things. That I had viewed some things in this world, and I was particularly, you know, very much into politics, that I had viewed some things wrongly.
this was just a little bit of light that got into a very dark mind. And this process begins from the day you're saved, and it goes on. And it's very much helped by the word, by fellowship, things like this. My, our mind is being renewed. Okay, so for the body life, for the church life, we need a, new, a renewed mind. And that's the process. We're all in the pro- uh, process. Then he goes on in verse 3, very important. He said, For I say to the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think more highly of himself, than he ought to think. I would add to that neither to think more lowly of yourself because there can be both. None of us uh, uh, should consider ourselves that lowly. Every one of us is a child of God. We're a member of the body of Christ. So don't think you're nothing. You are definitely not nothing. You're something. But don't think too highly of yourself either. And then he says, but think as to be sober-minded, as God has apportioned to each a measure of faith. So God has given us a measure. We all have a measure. And you really can't increase your measure. By enjoying the Lord more, you can grow, but your place and your portion is pretty much decided by God. Um, Anyway, that's just maybe enough on that. Okay, then uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, I think I've covered that. God has placed the members, each one in the body, even as he willed. Then, uh, of course, we just had the numbers training. And uh, in the numbers training, you know, God set them around the tent of meeting, but not by their own choice. He set them according to their families, their tribes. So, again, this is God's arrangement. God has an arrangement. And you don't do well in the Christian life when you fight against God's arrangement. Now, just real quick in passing, of course, another interesting point about the placement of the children of Israel around the tabernacle is that this tabernacle, which is Christ, but it's also Christ with the church. It's both Christ as our personal Savior and our Lord and our head, but it's also the church. Uh, it's, they were all camped around it, which means that the center of our life should be Christ and that our focus should be Christ and also should be the church as the body of Christ. Okay, then you have um, 2 Corinthians ten thirteen, the God of measure. So God measures things. And Paul was very conscious of God's measuring. He said, God has not measured that to me. Or he implied that God has not measured that to me. Paul, you know, wanted to go to Spain. But God never measured Spain to Paul. Paul wanted to go to Rome. But God only measured Rome to Paul as a prisoner. He didn't really work in Rome. A little bit. He had some, some amount of liberty, but not much. But he was mainly there as a prisoner. Never went to Spain. Brother Lee was conscious of God's measuring. He was involved in the work in Russia, but he never went to Russia. He was involved in the work in Africa, but he never went to Africa. Uh, so God will measure our work and our service, and we should be conscious. Don't be like a cancerous cell and lose contact inhibition, and grow and expand beyond your measure. Uh, that's also a problem. 
And what is our measure? Don't, don't worry too much about it. Generally, when you just enjoy the Lord and feel happy and peaceful, that's a good sign you're probably in your measure. Because, and then when you get out of measure, it just doesn't quite work. It's a little out of sync. You're not quite comfortable. You're sure, not sure that's me, you know. So it's, it's a very organic thing. But that's where we're happiest. Then you have Philippians 2, 3. Doing nothing by way of selfish ambition. And by the way, this is all related to the inner life. This is under the context of building up your inner life. So again, knowing our measure, being sensitive to our measure, not feeling the, the need to compete or to be in rivalry, not esteeming yourself too highly, neither too lowly, not esteeming others too highly or too lowly, is all part of the inner life. Okay, Philippians 2.3, doing nothing by way of selfish ambition nor vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, considering one another more excellent than yourselves. So if you're going to consider others, uh, one safe way is to always consider others more highly and to appreciate their virtues. In the context here, Paul said you should appreciate the virtues of others. In principle, the Lord underlined this in the Gospels when he said that when you go to a banquet or something like that, you should take the lower seat because naturally we would like, oh, uh, there's a good place right up there by the, the uh, speaker. I want to get there. Uh, we would get a higher seat. But he said, no, you should take a lower seat and then maybe someone would give you a lift higher. <laughs> but I in principle, this is the right thing to do. Uh, Take a lower position. A lower position. doesn't mean you're nothing, but it's a safe place to be. Watchman Nee said that if you're a fragile piece of glass, like a piece of china, okay, so you're a f like a real fragile piece of a cup or something like that, you don't want to be here because, you, oh, somebody bumps you, and you're going to sm be smashed. You're going to be smashed. But he says, well, the safe thing to do is, don't get, get, get up here. Stay down right here. <laughs> and if somebody, somebody bumps you, ah, you're okay. <laughs> you're good. You're no problem. <laughs> so that's Brother Nee. You know, he was pretty smart. And uh, this is, I think, why the Lord says that we should esteem others more uh, higher than ourselves and should have this. If we're going to have a mindset, take that mindset. Because the worldly mindset is always competition to be better, to put others down. In various ways. <coughs> um, you know, in, in, in Romans 12, Paul goes on after verse 3 to talk more about the, the body life. And he mentions a few things that help us in our practice of the body life. Number one, in verse 6, he says, we have gifts that differ. We, we're not all the same. We don't all have the same gift. Some people have a gift in one way, uh, maybe very compassionate, maybe very industrious to serve, maybe very creative in this way or that way. Uh, all kinds of different gifts. Even in human life are different gifts. Again, you learn a lot about the divine life by the human life. They're just different gifts. Some people are good in math. Some people are good in history. Some people are good in music. Some people are good in sports. They're gifts. Now, you can develop your gift, but still the gift is usually something that's kind of inborn, some kind of genetic thing that God has given you. 
you can develop it or you can waste it. But that you like, I just probably have, I don't care how hard I work, I'm not going to be a good singer. This is all there is to it. It's just not going to happen. And uh, but some people can sing, and some people can play music. I can't play music. My mother was an artist and a very, very accomplished artist, but I have no artistic talent at all. Did not. Maybe it'll jump over. Well, no, it didn't jump to my kids either. So maybe it'll jump to my grandkids. Actually, I have a granddaughter who's pretty showing some signs. Maybe she's an artist. <laughs> so, but anyway, in the body of Christ, there are gifts that differ. And n- we're not all the same. We don't have to. In one sense, we're all the same. We have the same life. We're in the same family. But in another sense, there are gifts, and we can enjoy the gift of others. We don't have to compete. This is, this is part of what Brother Lee Nee meant when he said we were saved again. So we have gifts that differ. And then in verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute. Bless and do not curse. Well, okay, I don't want to go. I'm going to go on. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, this is, this is uh, very sweet to me. Mainly, we're consumed with our own affairs. So I want, you, I want to tell you, Victor, all these things and... I'm so happy because I got a new car, I got a new job, I got a new promotion. And, and but Victor said, oh, man, I wish things were good like that would happen to me. I haven't gotten a new car. I have the same old job. <laughs> yeah, that's the way we are. But actually, if Victor's in the spirit, he's going to say, hallelujah, brother, praise the Lord. You got a new job. You got a new car. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> but the fallen life is, oh, <laughs> why do you get everything good and I get nothing good? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this, is a, this is building up the inner life to realize you actually have a life within you that rejoices with others. Amen. When they have good things, you rejoice for them. And when they have bad things, oh, you cry with them. You cry. I'll never forget when I was in the church in Dallas in 1970. Well, George is there. I don't know if he remembers it or not. But we had uh, a, a little baby born and the baby died. It was so sad. We had prayed. But the baby passed away. And uh, one of the elders, I wasn't an elder in Dallas, but one of the elders announced to the church after we had prayed much that this baby had passed away. I'll never forget that elder crying. It wasn't his child. It was not his child. And he cried. I was so touched with that love that he would have not for just his own child, but for... unrelated child but related by the life in Christ and he wept and I wept too okay then you got verse 16 be of the same mind toward one another now this is a great verse not setting your mind on the high things but going along with the lowly do not be wise in yourself this is a you could spend a lot of time on this verse we're all, we tend to be, by the fall, contrary people. And, uh, but here Paul says, try to be of the same mind. So many things don't really matter much. Just try to be of the same mind. And uh, don't set your mind on high things. And what that means is, what's high in this verse, we don't know really <coughs> what's high and what's low, but generally speaking, what's high is what I think is high. And what's low is what I think is low. And what you have is probably low, and what I have is probably high. This is a fallen man, right? 
So, but Paul says, don't set your mind on the high things. That means your own things. Mm -hmm. But even go along with the lowly, that means his things. Right. <laughs> and then he says, uh, and he says, going along with the lowly. In other words, in many, this is what Paul says. You think this is just what people say in the world. Oh, why don't you just learn to go along? In many things, just go along. It doesn't matter whether the chairs are set up in a square or a circle or we drive to Houston this way or that way. Many things just don't matter. So just don't worry about it. Just learn to be of the same mind as much as possible. Now, if Victor says, let's all go worship an idol over here, I'm not going to be of the same mind. <laughs> but if he says, uh, you know, this or that, it just doesn't matter. So this is what he's saying. It's very interesting. Okay, now let's go on here. Then uh, this is in the context of building up the inner life. First uh, Thessalonians 5.16 and 18. You know, I left out 17. I left it out on purpose, but I'm going to insert it. And I'll tell you why I left it out and why I'm putting it back in. Paul says, always rejoice. Uh, and I say to that, why not rejoice? Because it, it won't help you to be mad. It probably won't change things to be mad. Uh, but rejoicing can change, maybe not the outward circumstances, but it can change you. It can change you. And rejoicing is by faith. We praise him, we thank him, we worship him. Not because we understand clearly what lays out in the future for us. Because it seems like maybe this is something we shouldn't rejoice about. We should be angry about it, but we are believers and we know that God works all things together for good. We know that he loves us. We know his heart is good for us, so we can afford to rejoice because we have a father who cares about us. We have a loving father whose heart is only good. It's not one bit bad. And then I left out 17, which says that we should unceasingly pray, but I want to come back to it. I'm going to go to 18 first. And everything give thanks. It kind of goes with rejoicing. Again, why not? Because we believe in God. We believe he's for us. We believe he loves us. And I know it's a little bit crazy to rejoice when things are not good. Or a little bit crazy to rejoice when, uh, or to give thanks. But we believe in God. And we can say, thank you, Lord. I don't understand, but thank you. Praise you. I love you. Hallelujah. And it doesn't make sense to the world. No, you should be mad. You should get even. You should do something, although it's probably not going to do anything positive. It's going to give you a way to vent. Maybe people need to vent some. But a better way to vent is by rejoicing, praising, and thanking. This is faith. Remember that illustration that that uh, lady, Corey Tin Boone, who was put in the concentration camp she used to use. On this side of the, what is it called, crochet? Crochet? On this side of the crochet, you see the pattern. But on the other side, it looks very confused, very messy. So you can, as that Danish philosopher said, you only understand life looking back on it, but you have to live it looking forward. But while we live it looking forward, we're Christians. We're believers. And part of the shield of faith is that God is for us. That he loves us. And that he is... 100% for us and that he makes everything work for good in his way, his time, for those who love him. And so we can afford to rejoice and praise him and thank him and worship him 
And this may not change the environment, but it will change you. And you think about people that drink and use drugs. They drink and they use drugs. I don't know why, but anyway, probably, uh, you know, maybe they'll say it's to get relief or life is too hard. So they just need something to change them. Of course, you know, it hurts, (laughs) really. It's not really helping them, but temporarily uh, maybe it does some relief. But we need something also to change us, and that's to drink the Spirit. Not distill spirits, but the spirit. Because everything good is in the spirit. Everything positive, love and relief and joy and peace. And we've got, I mean, our, desire, our ambition in the, in the morning has got to be, Lord, I've got to be full of the spirit today. I can't live this life without the spirit. So some people wake up and they start drinking in the morning, right? I mean, you know, alcoholics, they'll wake up. I have a bit real fancy bubbly water here. But... Anyway, they wake up and they start drinking in the morning. Oh, what a sad, sad situation that is. They just can't bear life. So sad. We need to drink. We need to drink in the morning. I know they say when you drink in the morning, it means you're really bad shape. But we are really all in bad shape. So we have to start drinking early. (laughs) But this drinking is actually going to make you more sober-minded. Fill your heart with love and with peace and with joy and... uh, whether the environment has changed or not, that's up to God. But actually, many times, he does change the environment some <laughs> to help us. But that's not our focus. Okay, the verse I left out was unceasingly pray. So why did I leave it out? Well, I left it out because, you know, I thought, well, everybody knows we're supposed to pray, and we don't need to talk about that. But, then I had a consideration. Uh, Paul, in Ephesians, says by means of all manner of prayer I think probably some of us because I've been around a long time uh, we have a very narrow view of prayer Uh, we're not Anglicans or Catholics where we do recited memorized prayers you know I have some very dear Catholic friends because I grew up in South Louisiana and many of them are real Christians but uh, you know they have their way of praying and it's memorized, and even one guy said, hey, man, come on, that's the only way I know how to pray, you know, I was telling him, you know, maybe you should try something else, he was begging me to leave him alone, <laughs> he says, the only way I know how to pray, I said, okay, okay, just keep doing what you're doing, because, you know, I, he's too old to change, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and he was telling me, please don't bug me, but, you know, with us, we may have our mode, but let me tell you, prayer, we need to say, Lord, expand my borders, because prayer Paul says all manner of prayer. There's prayer in a group. There's prayer in a big meeting. There's prayer in a small meeting. There's prayer in twos and threes. There's prayer by yourself. There's prayer with your roommate, with your wife. Even individual prayers can vary. Of course, we know in principle, verbalized prayer is, is better because a lot in the Bible talks about your mouth verbalizing. So we know verbalized prayer is, is very, very helpful and very positive. But it doesn't mean that you can't ever pray silently. You can, and you should. And sometimes you cannot open your mouth. Watchman Nee couldn't open his mouth. He had, I'm sure he prayed. He had this pray in his heart. And if you look in the Old Testament, there, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was called before the king. And the king says, why is your face so down? And then it says, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Well, I don't think he got on his knees, but he must have had some interaction in his heart. 
So we need to pray in a lot of different ways. We need to pray sometimes silently if we're in a situation, maybe sometimes just barely moving our lips, but I would even go a little further. We need also to learn to pray conversationally to God, and that is to talk to God. And if we don't ever know how to talk to God as a friend, there is a little lack in our prayer life, maybe more than a little lack. Uh, you know, there's a booklet uh, that Watchman Nee has called Tell Him. And uh, in this, he kind of is talking about this theme here. That is, we can just tell things to God. We can talk to God. And every now and then, I would hear Brother Lee mention things like when I'm, I was walking in the, uh, you know, he had a little garden in his house. He's, he would say things like, I would just tell the Lord things. Well, this is a dimension that we need to develop, and that is to learn to talk to God, to tell him things. Like it says, tell him. The disciples would come back, and they would tell the Lord things. And the Lord was very happy to hear them tell him things. And again, let's go back to the human life. You think of the human life. If you're a parent, you like for your children to tell you things you like for your children to tell you things. God likes to hear us talk to him. He likes, and don't, and, and let me tell you something. I, and not only do I say don't worry about mistakes, I'm going to have to go further than that because I know we're all very good Christians and we don't like to make any mistakes. But I would say make some mistakes because that's the only way you're going to practice talking to God <laughs> because we're, many of us are very conscious. We don't like to offend God. We don't know he's real busy and, and everything like this, but talk to God. Tell him things. And in the Psalms, it says, pour out your complaints. If you're going to complain, don't complain to Enoch, because you might stumble him and he'll leave the church and something like that. But complain to God, he'll never leave the church. And he, ever, he won't even be that offended with you. He won't be offended, really. You, if you have a friend, this is the best friend you have. I guarantee there's no better friend. You can complain to him. You can, I mean, he is just willing to listen to you and you're not going to hurt him. You're not going to poison him. You're not going to stumble him. And he's still going to love you. And you, in a sense, the human body, you know, at cer certain times, it needs to vomit. And you may need to vomit. You may need to tell God things which are not nice. And maybe you're even wrong. And maybe you're wrong, but it's okay. It, sometimes it's not a bad thing to do. So we need to pray, and that means to talk to God in different ways, sometimes shouting, but sometimes very quietly. It just depends. It's not all the same. This is develop, developing our life. And the last verse here is Nehemiah 8.10. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I kind of covered this already. Uh, I just basically said that bro Brother Nee was in a situation where he was completely shut down about anything outward, but he still maintained his joy. And if your Christian life is without joy, you have a problem. Right? Right? Didn't they say from the outer space, Houston, we have a problem. Right? <laughs> so you have to say, God, I have a problem. I have no joy. But the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I'm not overly impressed by somebody who's just zealous and but I don't see any joy. I don't see any joy. 
<laughs> I'm, a little, I'm a little afraid. <laughs> I don't know. That kind of zeal may frighten me. You know, I mean, some of the nuns and priests may have that zeal, but I don't see much joy in them. They have a lot of zeal and a lot of enthusiasm. They go to monasteries and whip themselves and all kinds of stuff. But the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, then lastly, this application of Christ part two, just a few things. Uh, the daily habit, and that is don't lose heart, but be renewed day by day. So the Christian life is a day by day life. If you fail today, just go to bed, get up tomorrow. And the next verse says, I love them that love me. Those that seek me early shall find me. So I cannot back away from this because it's so much my experience and it's so much the experience of others. There is something special about the early hours. And it's not, it may be the same in the world by the time you get up. I don't know if it is or not. I think there's some evidence that even people in the world that get up earlier do better. But maybe that's not true. But in the Christian life, we know that this is the truth. And we know it should be early and it should be first thing before you get involved in your day. And I would say, if possible, try and have 30 minutes. That's what Brother Lee first said when he came to America. He first said 30 minutes. Now, he went down to 15 and maybe to 10, but that was his kind of a condescension or his trying to help people that were not doing well. But it's better if you can have 30 minutes. And it's easy to have 30 minutes because you just do some Bible reading. You don't have to be going the whole time strong. Pray read a little bit. But uh, then you just read the Bible, read some ministry, talk to the Lord some. You don't have to be in a panic. But it takes you a little time to absorb him. Okay, then the next thing says a few essentials, confessing our sins. You know, we never outgrow our need to confess our sins. We think things not properly. We look at things not properly. We say things that are off. We lo make mistakes. And um, when the Lord touches you, and you don't have to do it in a religious way based on what you think other people would think, but if you're touched in your conscience, then you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Amen. Just repent like that. Just move on. You don't have to dwell on it, but you should confess. And like one guy told me early on when I was a Christian, he said, you know, uh, concerning confession of sins, it's kind of, well, it wasn't early on. It was... It was a few years after I was a Christian. But anyway, he said, concerning confession of sins, it's kind of like using dental floss. Just floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> and then he said, about confessing your sins, just confess the ones you don't want to keep. If you want to deal with that one on the judgment seat, don't confess it. Yeah. Oh, then you can deal with that one later. <laughs> but if you want to get rid of that, then confess it now. <laughs> That's a good deal, right? <laughs> and your dentist has probably told you about floss the ones you want to keep. But only confess the ones you don't want to keep. If you really like that sin, you want to deal with God face to face on that one, don't confess it. And you can, maybe you can negotiate your way out of it. I don't know. We'll see. I doubt. But anyway, <clears throat> so we need to confess our sins. And then the, the words were found that I ate them with got to be in the Bible. We talked about that. And then calling on the Lord is a practice. You know, it doesn't always have to be that loud, but just mentioning the Lord's name. Okay, then consecrating our life to the Lord <coughs> and uh, 
in Romans 12, as we begin the section on the body of Christ, Paul begins by saying we need to present our bodies a living sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was, of course, consumed. But in the New Testament, the sacrifice is living. And then you have the story of Mary, uh, or the woman, and uh, she knows the Lord is going to be crucified. She knows he's going to die, and she takes advantage of an opportunity. And so she gets an alabaster flask with some ointment. She anoints his head. And the disciples, now that's not the outsiders, that's the disciples. They thought it was a waste. And they said, why this waste? And the Lord, of course, didn't appreciate their complaining. And he said, don't trouble her because you have the poor with you always, but you don't have me. And then he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what the woman has done is going to be told also as a memorial. Now, what this means is that with the gospel, you don't always have to tell the story exactly, but with the gospel, there is a, God desires a certain response. And the gospel is, this let's be real simple, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, right? So God loves you. That's the gospel. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you, that you could have eternal life, and all the blessings that go with that. That's the gospel. What does God want? Well, according to Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment is that we would love God. So God loves you, and God wants you to love him. This is, it makes sense. This is like a romance. This is like we have this in human life. Again, back to human life. You understand so much about the divine plan by human life. Love. A man and a woman love each other. And it's voluntary. They fall in love. One wants the love of the other. And one gives the love to the other. They both give the love and they both receive the love. This is a romance. The Bible is a romance. So the gospel is God loves you, but God also wants you to love him. And thi what this woman did was an act of love. She poured out this valuable ointment. And it was considered by some, even disciples, to be a little over the top. A little too much. A waste. Why this waste? In the eyes of the world, they will consider our following the Lord a waste. Unfortunately, even in the eyes of some believers... They may consider it a waste if they don't have a proper evaluation of the Lord. But the Lord is very happy with it. And he says, this is what she has done. There should be a memorial. <laughs> this is the only memorial, I think, that is mentioned in the New Testament. <laughs> what this woman did. It wasn't for Peter. There's no memorial for Peter. There's no memorial for Paul. There's a memorial for this woman, whoever she was, who poured oil on his head. This is what the Lord wants. This is... So what does this mean for us? Well, for us it means we hopefully are attracted by him because we can't make anybody do this. Uh, you can preach about consecration. You can talk about consecration. But eventually it's the love of Christ that constrains us. When we touch that love, then we are motivated to love back. Amen. And this woman... She touched that love, and she wanted to do something on the Lord. Now, I'll just tell you a quick little story. Uh, I was saved, you know, in May of 70. And then this guy who led me to the Lord, he left to go to Europe. So I didn't have anybody to shepherd me, because I didn't know hardly any Christians at all. I wasn't associated with any 
evangelical or Christian people. So I was pretty much on my own that summer. I didn't read the Bible too much. I was just brand new. I wasn't, didn't know much. I didn't hardly know anything. But anyway, I had an interesting experience. So I was dating this girl who I'm, this is my wife now. I was married to her. Uh, but we were dating, and I lived in Baton Rouge, which is south Louisiana. She lived in Monroe, which is north Louisiana. And so that summer, she was working up there. I went up to see her a few times. And one of those times, uh, she had become a Christian also. And I have, was a new, we're both brand new Christians. And so uh, that summer, I was waiting for her uh, to get ready, and I was just in her living room in her house. And uh, just kind of wait, waiting around. I saw a book there. And I just picked it up. It was an old book. And it was kind of like on a coffee table, the kind that, you know, you read just to kind of wait. And so uh, <coughs> I said, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the book, and it was written, I didn't know this, but it was written by her great-grandfather. And he uh, is telling his life story. Now, the reason he wrote a book like that, because later he became president of a small college in Alabama, a woman's college in Alabama. And so he was an educator, got his Ph.D., and so he had an interesting life of educating people, and eventually that college became co-ed, still around. I think it's called Huntington. And uh, it was a Methodist school. But anyway, he tells his life story. I'm just kind of thumbing through this book. And again, like I say, I'm only two months at most in the Lord. I didn't know anything about anything. And I'm just looking, and my eyes just stop on a page where there's this story of this battle in the Civil War. Now, he was a soldier from Alabama fighting, of course, for the South. And he's fighting in the Civil War. He was just a private, just a kid. And this is before he got his education and all that stuff. But uh, that, it was a famous battle in the Civil War called the Battle of Chickamauga. If anybody's a Civil War historian, you've heard of the Battle of Chickamauga. The second bloodiest battle, second bloodiest day in Civil War history. 34,000 killed on that one day. All Americans, of course, north and south. Bloody battle. So he's getting ready for that battle. It was fought in southern Tennessee, just north of the Alabama line. And uh, he's just a private. <coughs> and he's, he knows the battle's going to start. And he is a Christian. I didn't know that, but anyway, I'm just reading. And he says, he goes out for a walk before the sun comes up. Because those battles used to start basically when the sun would come up. You know, they would start fighting. So he knew what was going to happen. So he's walking in the woods in, in Tennessee and knowing that that battle is going to be a big one and a bad one and knowing that he might, that he might die and there's nothing he could do about it. <coughs> so he, in the book, it has the prayer that he prayed and it's in quotations. And he, I read that prayer and uh, the prayer was this, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my only hope. I give my all to thee. And he said he prayed this prayer over and over. Lord Jesus Christ, you are my only hope. I give my all to thee. Because he knew he would be, you know, a good chance he'd be dead that day. And he didn't have really any hope except the Lord. So I read that prayer and oh, I, I didn't know how to pray. I mean, my friend had left and I, he'd never taught me how to pray. And I didn't, I wasn't going to any Christian meetings, so no one had taught me anything. So this is really almost the first prayer that I ran across. And I just kind of, I liked it. And I just kind of adopted it. 
and I picked it, I began praying, because not, not much to memorize, but I just began praying this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you're my only hope. I give my all to thee. But the last part especially, I give my all to thee. <laughs> this was a little prayer of consecration, just surrendering my life to the Lord. It, interesting, that day he was shot. That guy was shot. But in those days, the, the, the buttons that they used to wear in those uniforms, many of them were brass. And the bullet hit this brass button. And it knocked him down, but he didn't die. He wasn't even hurt too bad. So he survived to get his education, to start this woman's college in Alabama. So anyway, that became my prayer, a little prayer of consecration. And to surrender your life to the Lord. If the love of Christ constrains you, we don't do this just because somebody tells us to do it. We have to do it because we want to surrender. There's something in us. There was something in me just two months in the Lord that just connected with this prayer. I like it. I want to surrender. I want to give my all to thee. Amen. And I just prayed it exactly that way. Lord Jesus Christ, you're my only hope. I give my all to thee. And this became my first prayer, really my first prayer almost, because I didn't really pray much. And it was a prayer of consecration. So hopefully the Lord would lead us all to give our lives to him. Let me just say this to the young people. The Lord can manage your life a lot better than you can. Now, you may not believe this, but I know it from experience. That he, and, but don't, don't, don't be afraid. I'm telling you, his heart and desire for you is absolutely good. He does, he's not wanting to send you to a monastery in, in uh, Saudi Arabia or someplace. He wants, he wants the best for you. But you have to give him, the, be willing to give him the steering wheel. And that's the decision. And it's an act of faith. But it's an act of love. And it's a very exciting life. To give the Lord preeminence in your life, to surrender to him, is the most interesting and exciting way to live. We live in the book of Acts. And every day can be an adventure with the Lord. Okay, then lastly, the glory of oneness. This is also related to our inner life and building up our inner life. And there's a lot to say about this. But the Lord prayed in John 17... Uh, he said, I do not ask for these only. That means not just for these disciples present, but also for those who will believe into me through their word. That's us. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe. So the Lord, his night before his crucifixion, he's praying not for the gospel, not for holiness, not for sanctification, not for all kind of other things he could have prayed about. But he prayed for the oneness of the body of Christ. And he said, if they would be perfected into this oneness, even a oneness to the degree of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that this would be a testimony and the world would believe. Yeah. This is really interesting. And then he goes on in verse 23, he says, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected into one. This means there's a process going on of our being perfected into this oneness. Again, he mentions that the world may know that you have sent me. So a strong testimony to this world is the oneness of the believers. And people, uh, well, before I go there, I want to just tell you one other thing. In John 13, there's another portion that talks about the world believing. And that is in John 13, where the Lord says, if you love one another, then the world will know. 
So two things in the Gospel of John he says are going to testify to the world. One is your love for each other, and the other is your oneness. Well, these are related, of course. Love and oneness are very related. But he says if you love one another, that this is going to prove or be a testimony that you're my disciples, and I'm really from God, and you're really my people, and that if you're one, it's going to prove that God has sent me. So the love and the oneness are proofs. That means they're big things. The Lord prayed about the oneness of the believer before he died. So there is a glory to this matter of our being perfected into one. And there's a lot spoken about this. This is not a mechanical oneness. It's not an autocratic oneness. It's not, you know, Kim Jong-un's oneness in North Korea. This is a oneness of the spirit. This is a oneness where our mind is being renewed. And we are, in, we're even, Paul says we even would think the same thing, that we would even speak the same thing, that we would have the same love and we'd have the same care and we'd be of the same mind. This is an incredible thing. And this does not negate your person. It does not negate your person, but it, it tunes you like a, a symphony. In a symphony, there's still violins, there's still drums, there's still trombones, there's still piccolos and flutes. There are many different instruments, but there is an attuned oneness that makes a beautiful music. But if all those instruments just, you know, then it's just, it's just awful. But boy, if you hear a symphony that really is good, it's beautiful. And you just the violins and the, the trumpets and the, all the things, it's, it's beautiful. So there's a beauty in this. And even nature tells us when there's harmony. Uh, and, and the world longs for this. The world knows we need oneness. The United Nations and their songs, all the songs, of course, are written about love. That's what every song is about love. Everybody knows you've got to have love. But the world is full of hate. The world is full of wars. The world is full of divisions. The world is full of fightings. At any one time, there's always many wars going on, civil wars, conflicts all over the world. This is Satan. This is the fruit of Satan. But the fruit of God is oneness and love. And this will ultimately be, of course, in New Jerusalem, will be perfected into that one, oneness with God and with one another. And there'll be a beautiful symphony. We won't be negated. Don't think you'll just be some kind of blob in the wall. You'll be you, but you'll be tuned and you'll be perfected and you'll be in harmony. And it'll be a, a glorious testimony. So this is, uh, we need a, some, some evaluation of the glory and the preciousness of oneness. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, in the first item of a walk worthy, he says, walk worthy of your calling. And then he says, the first item, keep the oneness of the Spirit. So it's a big, big matter, which very little in Christianity pay much attention to this matter. But it's a big matter. Then lastly, God's special way is the way of gathering together in twos and threes and bigger meetings, of course, too. But all of us need the experience of having a twos and threes. You've got to have some saints you're with, some companions you can pray with, you can talk to, you can fellowship with. This is very, very important. And this is a twos and threes. It can be bigger than that, of course. That's just a minimum. It can be bigger. But, you know, there's a place also for the smallness. Sometimes smaller in some settings is better. So this can be different kind of meetings, big meetings, conference meetings, training meetings, home meetings, but also twos and threes. Lots of different ways we can meet together. We need each other. 
You, don't, you won't live the Christian life well if you don't have some companions, but you also need the private side. You need both sides. It's like a bird needs two wings to fly. You need both this wing and that wing, a private life, a corporate life. Okay, let's have some time for you to share. <coughs>